we're, we're going to be talking this morning about something that uh, is sort of new and, and, uh, and yet old. I think all of you are of the understanding or the realization that we're seeing more and more disasters than ever before. And some people might say, oh, well, this is because we're reporting them more. We're right on the front lines. We've got the TV and the cameras and we're, you know, more sensitive to all these things. But if we actually look at the recording of natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis, those kinds of things, in this past ten years, we have seen an increased incidence of those kinds of things. So as we think about those, let's go to prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your blessings and for your great love for us. That unfathomable love that you've given. And Lord, we trust you and want to be called according to your purposes. We want to bring glory and honor to you. And now, Father, we think of giving a cup of cold water to those who are parched without hope and without help. And Lord, as we do that, may they see for once and forever living water. And we call it Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing and guidance as we speak this morning. May I be hidden by the cross, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, like I said, we're going to talk about some things that are a little bit different. I just got back from Santiago, Chile, where we did a disaster relief certification course for surgeons. Now, you might think, well, we're, we're ready to go. You know, here's a guy who uh, I've been fortunate to be the director of Global Health Outreach for the past 13 years for CMDA. So I've gone on a number of mission trips. And uh, one might say, okay, you've gone on all these mission trips. You're ready. You, you, you're ready to, to go to disaster relief. <coughs> But that's not the case. I soon found out that this is not a mission trip. This is not the organizational pattern. This is not the environment. Nor is it the place to learn. They have found that out in Banda Aceh. They have found it out in Haiti, in Japan and all the other areas that we've done. This has been a product, this certification program, has been a product of debriefings that have occurred on what we did well and what we did that was not so good. And, and it was universally uh, appreciated by teams from Germany, from Japan, from Australia, from England, that 
we didn't do as well as we thought we might. And so what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about uh, what this sort of certification program entailed, how it, how it sort of developed. I, I won't be able to feed you or allow you to drink through a fire hydrant because there's going to be that, that much kind of information. But I'll give you a, an insight and a, and a little bit of wisdom. And then specifically, I want to deal with a few of the issues where we had made mistakes. Where, when I say we, I'm talking about surgeons in general regarding disaster relief. Okay? So, as we look at things this morning, this disaster relief program was put together by Red R Australia, which provides specialty training programs throughout the United States and throughout all countries of the world. They are just a specialty group in critical care. And, and uh, then the Royal Darwin Hospital had come behind this and realizing the importance, they send a lot of people from Australia out into disaster relief areas. So they have been very much centered on this. And, of course, the International Committee of the Red Cross are the ones who set the guidelines with the World Health Organization about humanitarian efforts and how they should be organized, orchestrated, and operated. So they're the checkpoints. And some of you may be aware of that. You know, you wear the Red Cross, you're supposed to be safe, even in a, in a hostile environment, because you're neutral. That's one of their great tenets. You're completely neutral religiously, politically, and every area. So that if someone is brought to you, just like our armed forces uh, hospitals, if someone is brought to one of our hospitals in Afghanistan and they're, uh, you know, uh, hostile uh, individuals from the Taliban or, or whatever, they're taken care of the same as they would be if they were one of our service personnel. So this is the international humanitarian idea. But I want you to know that we just don't carry that Red Cross flag, that international, you know, uh, Red Cross humanitarian effort. We carry the banner of Christ, which puts a greater, in my mind, burden of responsibility and desire for excellence than I would ordinarily have as a humanitarian. Because when someone is dying, what does the humanitarian effort have to offer them? Well, this is the end. Goodbye. But for us, it can be the very beginning, and for them, for eternal life. So, uh, let's, let's take a look at, at, at some of these issues. The, uh, the surgical response and disaster relief specifically dealt with the specifics of surgery, the epidemiology of the, of the surgery, and how these kind of things develop. And we had some excellent surgeons come. Uh, from all over the world to help with a desire to, to help and keep 
morbidity and mortality down. They came with their skills of placing bone plates and pins and and taking care of crush injuries and, and so forth. And they treated many of these injuries as though they were not contaminated wounds. As though we were seeing them in our emergency room in a half an hour, an hour, two hours from the time of injury. Many of these were 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, or two days after an injury. And that was one of the real difficult problems involved. Health management after a disaster is always a major concern because there has to be communication relative to the waterborne diseases that are bound to show up. Whether it's just an earthquake and the potable water has been destroyed or whether it's a situation where you've had a tsunami and you have all the water supplies contaminated. So we're looking at cholera and typhoid and The first case that is recognized is the hallmark of we're ready to see an influx of these tremendous diseases, which are diarrheal diseases and really will cause death without proper hydration and, and, and care. So it's important to communicate those kinds of situations. And then we're going to an area where Cultural sensitivity is extremely important. You've got to do your homework. It's not just a matter of, well, we're going to go in there and we're going to take care of them, we're going to help them, because animistic cultures and, and beliefs and worldviews will affect greatly how we, our care is appreciated uh, cooperated with, followed through with. Some people will tell you this was a terrible disaster. Our people did not please our ancestors. They were unhappy with us. And therefore we had the earthquake. We had the tsunami. Whatever the situation And you say, well, you need to take this antibiotic because of your infection. And they say, no, I need to to improve my relationship with my ancestors so they won't be angry anymore. You see, the world view tells them, this isn't a problem regarding my medical condition. This is a problem spiritually. And so we need to address or help that. Some people, based on their cultural environment, say, look, if I don't get a shot, the medicine's not good. It's not strong enough. I need to get get a shot. I need to get an IV. You know, whatever the situation is. So rather sometimes than argue or become in a, in a difficult situation, particularly in a large disaster relief. Okay. You, you, you might say, uh, uh, write a note to the nursing staff, give this individual I am water. 
Now, we don't say saline because IM water stings. Right? It's hypotonic. And you know if it stings, it's got to be doing something good. (laughs) And then you need to say, hey, now, wait a minute. This will only work if you take your medicine. So you've got to take your medicine when we give you this shot so that it'll work. And so you're couching, in a sense, their beliefs in a system that will sort of help them. I think in a mission hospital, you could deal with it in a more gentle way, maybe a longer term kind of thing. But here we have thousands of people waiting to be triaged. So cultural sensitivity, understanding where you're going, what kind of patients you're going to see, how you can help them is a very important thing. We'll we'll talk about the essentials of triage management uh, and then the principles of dirty wound management. Those kind of things have been instrumental in causing some difficulties with disaster relief. Um, So if, if we look at the essential of triage, and this has some areas that may really get, get to our heart. There are some pictures that we're going to be looking at through this that I hope are not too offensive for you in the morning, but we'll try and look at those from a serious and a learning standpoint. But the Category 1 triage is serious wounds, resuscitation and, and immediate surgery. There is a good chance that this person will recover if they're given treatment right away. They might be uh, a wound where there's been uh, an amputation. There might be extremity bleeding. There might be a crush injury to the chest. Uh, It it might be a burn and and so forth. So these are people that that are serious in their wounds, but that we believe we should be able to save. And then there are others that may have compound fractures that have serious uh, uh, problems, certainly. Uh, In our emergency room, we'd whisk them in and and get them to the operating room soon. But in this particular situation, they can wait. They're not critical. What we do with them can be done Later, down the road, we can call them to the OR when we have a little bit of extra time and, uh, and the opportunity. Then there's the Category 3, which are really the ambulatory kinds of, of wounds and things you might see in the emergency room. They have uh, cuts and superficial wounds. They might have a minor uh, injury, as we would say, they might have a burn, excoriations, uh, loss of some tissue, minor, minor burns, but they're ambulatory. Many of the patients, for example, in Category 1 are not ambulatory. Their uh, coma scale may be they respond to you if you pinch them or if you arouse them or if you shake them. And their response may be 
inappropriate. We need to check them very, very carefully because of intracranial injuries, obviously, cervical spine injuries. Uh, and and our, our premise in this whole triage situation is the same as, as everything that, that we do, is airway, breathing, circulation, and, you know, stopping the, the bleeding. But it, is, it entails a complete and rapid evaluation of that patient in every area, making sure that we're not missing a puncture wound, a, a bullet wound, a, an area where they're bleeding that, that's in their head or their scalp with a penetrating injury. So many areas that we need to be extremely careful to evaluate in that, in that triage. And then the fourth area of the triage really is an area that is of great concern to us, particularly as Christians. Because as we look at category four, they're severe wounds. These individuals look as though they're not going to make it. We don't have the resources to spend hours in the operating room on one patient because many others will be lost. These are the patients that, if we did spend all that time, their odds of recovery and recuperation are very low to non-existent. What do we do with those kind of patients? And what they would say, we need to put them aside, we need to give them pain management, we need to allow them to die with dignity in a place that is quiet. We have to reassure the family. We have to do everything that we can to, to do that. My concern is these are patients who have never heard of the Lord Jesus. And they're about to go into eternity. How important is it? We have something to offer that humanitarian aid can never offer, nor would they try and offer to patients in that category. And so I feel we cannot leave that time without redeeming the, an opportunity to speak to them about the Lord Jesus and allow them to know that this is not the end, but it can be the beginning. That, that heaven's doors are, are open. It's unfortunate that we're in this situation, but heaven's doors are open and there's room for you. And allow them to understand those kind of things. So it's, 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 it's a wonderful opportunity in that, in that regard. We, we, uh, we went into some great detail on the surgical management of trauma, burns, airway. One of the difficulties that, that was found when, when we looked at the overall debriefing is that patients who had airway problems that in our country, we would say this looks like a temporary airway problem. We're going to put an endotracheal tube in the patient. We're going to, you know, stabilize them. It may be a nasoendotracheal tube, so it's a little more stable 
but we're going to use that to help maintain their airway. And uh, if they need to go to the OR, they're, they're ready to go. Problem being, in disaster relief, we usually lack the nursing staff with experience and capability as well as numbers of nursing staff for a tremendous number of patients in a post-anesthesia recovery area uh, to, to, to take care of. And so this makes a considerable problem in something critical like the airway. So our sensitivity level has to be much higher. And, and we'll talk about that uh, in, just, in just a couple minutes. And the other thing is the orthopedic skills and external fixation, which uh, we don't use an, an awful lot. I, some of you may have been in operating rooms and said, how many times have you seen external pin fixation used in our country to take care of fractures? And certainly maybe if you're going to put traction on a femur and you might put a pin in uh, and, and put traction and, and, and weights on and things like that. But external pin fixation is not something we routinely use. There was a great emphasis placed on the uh, field hospital planning. Remember on a mission trip, you know where you're going, where you're going to stay. All the plans have been made. You're ready to go. Well, here, the airport can be down. You may have to land in another country and go across the border to go into this, this country. You need to think about, what about passports? What is the nature of the operation in that country? Many of these countries are maybe under martial law. And all of a sudden you say, well, I'm coming to help you. And you find that the military is under control. They, they may not want to let you come in. So it, it is very, very uh, challenging because you also may not know, particularly if you're the first line team coming in, to set up the hospital where they even would like you to set up. And then you're given that ground, and now where do you put the water supply? Where? How about the latrines, the tents? How about your supply area? How about the morgue? How about the hospital area? What's the flow pattern? So when you're the first to arrive as that surgical team, there are a lot of considerations that need to be made, and they can't be made at home as sort of a preparation for you going. So those areas need to be covered. And then there is the area of safety and security. Well, on a short-term trip, if you're not going to Afghanistan with me or something, you, you don't have to worry as much about safety and security. Although, in some areas, the uh, Dominican Republic and so forth, they, they'll often send... Uh, police with a team just to make sure that your supplies are not taken away and things like that. So there, there are areas of concern, even in short-term missions. But long-term, one of the concerns in a mission hospital every day is thievery. People take supplies out of the hospital, take it to the town, uh, 
develop their own jobs or whatever, and you'd think, what are they doing? What are they thinking? Sometimes they might even take used uh, multi-dose vials out, fill them with water, just so they can get some status in their community and so forth. So you need to be so careful about sharp use. You need to have security to just hold on to the supplies that you have at hand. Can you imagine the, the, the need for food, the need for supplies, and the, and, and the tremendous uh, burden that are on this, this community, this area, this region, as they face this tremendous uh, disaster? And how much they want to even help each other they're, they're the first responders often. You know, when, in our country, we, we think of the first responders being different. But it's their neighbors, it's their friends that are the first responders and want to help. And so that can often make a problem with security and safety. We have to think about the, fir- the personal security uh, and safety uh, of individuals on the team. And how uh, they are going to be protected. And then we need to think about some remote living skills. Uh, when you go on a, on a mission trip, you already have planned, well, here's where we're going to eat. The food's pretty safe. And we'll buy some bottled water. And, and we'll, you know, when you get into a disaster area, you don't have potable water. You may not have any ability other than the use of a purifying device to, to make that, you have to look after the team's health and wellness because if they're not healthy and well, they can't do their job. So it's critical in this environment to, to sort of help and to give them that kind of experience. In a, in, in a field hospital, everyone is, is, is working together. Every, everything is set up. It is not, unfortunately, even in the best of situations, the same degree of sterility that we have in our ORs. So it, it is a, it, it's a bit more challenging in, in every way. Uh, people are working together that haven't had the experience of working together. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a challenge for surgeons. It's a challenge for our circulators. And, uh, and yet we need to do our, you know, our absolute, our absolute best. There are some areas of tropical medicine that are extremely important for surgeons to know. If, if you don't understand that, you know, there, there are medical problems that these patients have and that you do surgery on a patient that has malaria. And they've had significant trauma. It's not unusual for that patient to spike temperatures and activate the malaria immediately after the surgery. And if you're not aware of some of the problems with these kind of situations with post-trauma patients, you're immediately thinking, oh my goodness, you know, there's a wound infection, uh, uh, meningitis, there's... You know, so you, you sort of have to really get a handle on the good physical examination. You know, today we say, well, 
we can only spend 10 minutes with our patient. So let's uh, forget the physical exam. We'll go with a good history and I'll order these tests. Well, in a disaster relief situation, you don't have time. You don't have the capability of ordering these tests. Physical diagnosis is one of the most important aspects of your whole, whether you're a nurse triage person, whether you're an operating room uh, nurse, a physician, physical diagnosis is your most important tool. Because x-rays are limited, numbers, we need to, to be critical about the ones that we order. The tests have to make a dramatic influence on how we're going to treat that patient. It's not a screening process. It's not a, well, let's, let's see if we can work this out. Because we just don't have the time. And so we don't have the resources, and it makes it very, very difficult. One of the things that we did, we had a day and night immersion program. I don't know if you know what a day-night immersion program is, but it wasn't pretty. By that, I mean we went out in a caravan with 20 checkpoints put in on a GPS. And we had to check in at each of the 20 checkpoints. And during that time, we went through some roadblocks, some governmental stops and everything that were made up for us. This is an immersion kind of thing. Eventually, we had a, a, a what, what one would say is a carjacking. In our case, it was a truck jacking. And they took our vehicle. They were checking us. Did we have our go bag right next to us? So that when we were stopped and had to get out, did we have our papers that we needed? Did we have our GPS? Did we have our radio contacts? Were people smart enough to turn their radios off when we got to the checkpoint? So we didn't heighten the degree of suspicion, heighten the problems that we would have in getting through. And, and so many little details. They wanted to search the, the vehicles. So they went and searched the vehicle and found some weapons in one of the vehicles. Why? Because the driver was not smart enough to check to see that the vehicle, when they left, did not happen. And the team leader was not smart enough to go with them when they inspected, so guns were planted in the vehicle so that they could stop. So many areas that have to be thought of that you would never think of in a short-term mission trip. But, and you'd think, well, we're going to help. They're going to help us to do this. Not all the time. Maybe not so much. And uh, so it's extremely important that those on the mission are prepared and know that that caravan travel, navigation, communication with your base, hostile negotiation skills, where people say, hey, look, people come here all the time to help us. And then they leave. And we don't get any help. Oh, by the way, you're here to help me. Well, I have, well, what about my men here? I've got some men with malaria. and Can you help them? 
I mean, you're here to try and start a hospital and take care of the disaster problem. You see, the interests, the culture, everything plays a role. How are you going to negotiate with them? Oh, uh, our military needs those cars that you have, those trucks. Is there a way that we can get those? There are so many sort of negotiations and, and issues that are extremely important. And then you need to look at the assessment of risk. And what we actually do is take a look in, in a risk analysis sort of survey. And by doing that, what we do is we look at what, what are the things that are low likelihood, low impact things. This, this is the area where we'd like everything to be. And there are some things that we can do to put things that are significant risk or high likelihood or high impact down the list so that it comes closer to sort of a minor risk rather than a significant risk. And training is one of the things. Training and, and understanding and cultural understanding, being able to negotiate in difficult situations, and also the knowledge of some of the things that you're going to be facing. And some of the things you're going to be facing are hostage-taking, kidnapping, and you don't sort of think of these usually with your mission trip. You know, this is, this is an entirely different thing. Remember, you're going into a country, you're traveling on roads, the, the foundational structure of that country has been destroyed. When that happens and the governmental areas are taking over, the, the normal uh, sort of things that do occur are escalated like the, the bandits, the, the, the people that are causing problems, and, and they see an opportunity here to do things that normally they might be held down a little bit with, but are still a problem in the country. Now they become a major problem in the country. So we, we look at the, the, the risk analysis and, and try and put things in, in categories. We do it as a group because this is a, a perspective kind of thing. Say, here are the things that could happen. Where do they rank in, in, the, in, the, in the whole plan of things? And, and something that happens which is significant, a high likelihood that it would happen and a high impact for the team. Sometimes those things are, are hostage-taking. Particularly true if we were you know, in Afghanistan or Pakistan or some of those areas. Those, those issues then, how do we decrease that risk, that problem? So... The, the convoy can be various types. We, we can be moving as a convoy into the country, uh, you know, with our, with our Land Rovers or that kind of, of all-terrain vehicles by ourselves on roads that are not particularly good. Uh, that's not unusual. Uh, many of you have been on even just mission trips where the roads are, are, are not 
uh, easily passable or problems. You can imagine with mud and, and all the other things how, how challenging those areas can be. Sometimes we're very fortunate in, in some of the convoys that we have, and we're led by people that are quite experienced, the, the military, that are willing to sort of help us and guide us through. Other times the military is at a checkpoint, and they say, when you pass this checkpoint, we're finished with you. There, there's no way that we're going to come in and help you. There's no way that, that you're going to get any assistance from us. You're on your own. And so those are the kind of things that you, and one extreme and then the other. Airway management. We talked about airway management. And, and airway management is a critical, critical issue for us. This, uh, this gentleman over here, uh, has a burn injury. Now, a, a nasopharyngeal airway is hardly a satisfactory airway for this person long term, nor is it going to take care of his respiratory burns. He has some real problems uh, ahead for him. When he comes in, he's tremendously swollen. Without question, this is a, a, a candidate for a trach. Uh, if he's if he's going to be able to to survive a crushing injury involving multiple facial injuries with bleeding uh, cerebral spinal fluid leaking it, the nasal pharyngeal airway or even the nasal endotracheal tube is a poor choice for that kind of situation that that patient as well needs to be to to have a, a, a trach placed you can look at the swelling that's occurred because there's an asymmetry down here. If you, if you were to palpate the mandible, you know there's a fracture in the mandible as well. And, and you can see the swelling that is already down into the neck area for an anesthetic standpoint and for a patient care standpoint and for the care of the pulmonary toilet down the road. That patient certainly needs uh, an oral. It, here's another example. Multiple kinds of injuries Foreign bodies going through the, the nasal area, into the mouth, through the cheek, into the maxilla. That patient has multiple obstructions to the airway and, and really needs to have a trach. So there, there are some examples. And this patient as well, an early burn case, needs uh, definitely needs to, to have a trach. So one of the areas that we talk about is how about the morgue. You know, we've all heard of, of, about the, the necessity of, of having a morgue, and there are many, many bodies involved. What's the danger of these dead bodies uh, being around and, and disease and infection? Not much, believe it or not. Not much. It, that, that, the odor may be terrible, the identification of, of bodies is critical, but the actual danger of sending disease out into the community for the dead body being in, in that location and all is, is not a great hazard. It, it is important to, for the dignity of patients to do it in a proper way. It's important for families. It's important for loved ones. And, and we need to to, to do that, but you can see how unruly 
it gets and how, how difficult it can be. Dirty and contaminated wounds has, has been a critical issue. Um, I, I would say 99 to 100% of the wounds that we see are dirty and contaminated. The, the equivalent of, of the tsunami wounds is the fact of having an injury and then forcing as much bacteria and, and contamination through the wound as you possibly can with a syringe. That, that is equivalent to the kind of wounds that we see, and they're late often. We, we see them a day, two days later. We've had some wonderful uh, surgeons who have uh, used their best techniques in terms of the placement of bone plates, of pins, of rods in, in fractures, and, and done some great closures. What's happened, unfortunately, is six weeks or eight weeks later, these wounds break down. Pins have had to be removed. Plates have had to be removed. And it is a disaster in itself because now we're faced with, you know, some very, very difficult situations. How about tetanus? Do, do any of you, is tetanus a life-threatening situation? It, it certainly is. And, and uh, when, when tetanus occurs, uh, we could lose at least 30% of the people that, that develop tetanus. So one of our, our concerns with this dirty wound situation, in an area where people are not immunized from tetanus, is to give tetanus immune globulin in one arm and tetanus toxoid in the other arm because we don't want them to interact with each other and nullify their effectiveness. So tetanus is an extremely important, that's one of our hallmarks that patients get, the tetanus immunization. Uh, and then the next thing is their antibiotic therapy. But the best antibiotic therapy that we can give is good surgery. When I say that, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just kidding. Here's an example of a wound that's greatly infected. It was sort of neglected. Here's an area of a wound that was closed, an amputation, and it's, it, it's tremendously infected as well because it was closed early. The, the area on the, on the hip was, was disregarded. It was just, well, it was a puncture wound. It was never explored. It was never excised. It was never irrigated. I, I'm not absolutely sure about whether the patient uh, got uh, necessary antibiotics and coverage because there wasn't the necessary paperwork. You see, the, the paperwork needs to be with the patient. This is not a, a situation where medical records are easily uh, controlled. And, and you need to have a system where everything that you do and you see is written down carefully so that the next person to see the patient, if they're being triaged out of the area to a, to a more stable area after they've been 
stabilized where you are to do some definitive surgery goes with them. They know what the patient is, uh, has had. So there are some very important issues there. The, the other area, what, when these things happen, now we're faced with a major, a, a major problem. The major problem is this. Uh, necrotizing fasciitis. Which, a lot, which, which means we've got to open that area up. We've got to debride it. We've got to make incisions through the fascia to let out gas gangrene if that's been one of the problems. We need to, to, to do that. And that means no matter where it is, you, you can imagine how, how cleaning that up and, and debriding that area makes uh, a, certainly a difficult uh, reconstruction effort for us. But basically, it's either a difficult reconstruction or the patient won't live. So, I mean, some of these things you, you, we haven't seen in our, in our everyday life in the USA. But when these wounds come and they're significant, they need to be cleaned. Hemostasis needs to be maintained and, and, uh, and, and we need to look at that. The other areas that we looked at were a lot of what we call guillotine amputations. Those are very, very difficult to uh, care for. There are few indications for a guillotine amputation. One is entrapment, where there is no way to get the patient out. And the only way to do it is to give anesthesia, which in that particular case might be ketamine, and to do an amputation. That is often a guillotine amputation. When you see that kind of a a result, it is extremely difficult to, to transform it into a limb that can withstand a prosthesis. And, and often these patients are doomed to not having a prosthesis. We saw that in the hundreds, in the thousands in Haiti. Difficult, difficult kinds of things. Don't make it any more difficult than it is. And that means proper use of the, the flaps adjacent to the amputation area so that eventually you will close those musculocutaneous flaps around the amputation so that we can use a, uh, a you, you know, a, a prosthesis. Extremely important. And to, to put drains in there. But remember what we talked about? Uh, we talked about delayed Primary closure, delayed primary closure. So let's take a look at those things quickly. We need adequate wound excision to remove any necrotic tissue, contaminated tissue, foreign material, which are often parts of clothing or, or foreign bodies that have been impregnated in there, blood clots, heavy irrigation. In our situation, we'd say, well, we're, we're just going to irrigate, hook up the IV solutions, we'll flush them out. What we use is potable water, 100% better than what they're used to, but that's all we have. We cannot use IV solutions, sterile IV solutions. So potable water 
clean, boiled water, that, that's good. That's, that's fine. That's what we're going to use, and we're going to use it in abundance. They, they say the solution to pollution is what? Dilution. So here we go. We're going we're gonna to flush those areas out tremendously. Um, we, we want adequate wound drainage. We want to make sure that proper drains are put in there to, to allow evacuation of that. And, and uh, you know, that means the wound left open without any sutures. Remember we saw that one early that, that had been closed and the infection and the swelling that happened there. That is... That is really a, a problem. So hemostasis, opening an evulsive wound so that it, the, the contaminated tissue and area is, is there, cleaned out. And that sort of means that we have good hemostasis. There is limb immobilization until healing of the soft tissues allows us to get back in there. That's why we need that. And I'll show you a little picture of that too. Tetanus uh, prophylaxis, remember we, I said is extremely important in our protocol. Antibiotics, analgesics, and the best antibiotic is good surgery, is good surgical technique. Nutrition and, and so forth. External pin fixation is, is a very, very important issue, particularly when there's avulsive tissue loss. It allows you to get to the area where you've placed your dressing, you can go to a, sort of a wet dressing covering that area. I, I suggest that surgeons do not, uh, on the ward, open the dressings. But if you, you'll be able to tell, if you're doing poorly there, you'll smell it. And then you need to take the patient to the operating room. Otherwise, four to five days, uh, for delayed primary closure. Even in some of our cases where we've had large uh, defects, where there's been avulsive loss, we have put patients in external pin fixation in the uh, maxillary facial area. So uh, it, it tends to be a very, uh, very good thing to, to use. Uh, nursing and, and physical therapy, we try and get the patient mobilized, get them off to an area. Pulmonary emboli are often a problem with all the infection and, and so forth. The sooner we can get them mobilized, the better. Uh, no unnecessary dressing changes. A lot of dressing changes in, on the ward area tend to spread infection. Uh, we don't have good infection control. Patients are closer than we'd ever like to see them together. And then I say the delayed primary closure, four to five days. We're not sort of used to that. We don't do that often. And, and yet it is the rule as opposed to the, the exception in uh, disaster uh, wound management. The other area is we don't often have a lot of neurosurgeons, and I'm certainly not a neurosurgeon, but there are some significant problems, obviously, when we see patients that need uh, burr holes. And so, basically, we, we use, uh, you know, the hand uh, method to, to make burr holes. We you often do calvarium grafting for patients that we do maxillofacial surgery. So, 
They say, you're, you're used to working there. Why don't you go and you do the burr holes? Well, you know, we, we're doing some things that we don't ordinarily do, but there's no other way to do it. And then the chest tubes. So um, that's where we're at. The thing that we want more than ever is to give the patient the opportunity to see a new day and a new sunrise and do it by allowing them to see Jesus and him alone. Thanks for all your...